Welcome. I'm John Lavelle, your host. You'll find us here on PRN FM, Mondays at 10 a.m. on Visionaries. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. And along the way, we talk to some interesting people, although today I don't have a guest. I'm going to talk about Marshall McLuhan. I got a bunch of emails uh, over the past week because I mentioned McLuhan, and we noticed that most people have heard of McLuhan. I'm, all of my faculty colleagues I teach at Pratt Institute have heard of McLuhan. None of them have read McLuhan. Some of my students have heard of McLuhan. None of them have read McLuhan either. So I'm going to save you the effort of having to read the book. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll sort of uh, do a an overview here on this show. Next week, I'm going to talk about something McLuhan would have appreciated: MOOCs, M O O C S. So MOOCs are massive open online courses which are challenging universities. And my guest will be someone who started his own MOOC. So we'll. We'll be doing that next week, and you'll find out about this whole idea of disruption. I actually I did a I did a course on my colleague's MOOC on Frank Lloyd Wright. So next next week you'll find out where to find that and how you can uh, you can take a very sophisticated college college level course for free online. So again, we're here every Monday at 10 a.m. And you can catch all of our past shows on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, as in Nancy, dot com. And we've spoken to the oh, writer, philosopher, screenwriter, Phil Cousineau. We talked about our computational world, about becoming creative. I interviewed architect Mike Silver about robots and consciousness, had on Bill Katavlis, one of the great visionary futurists of our time, and a colleague of mine teaching, John David Ebert, who you'll find at culturaldiscourse.com. He does movie reviews and uh, in-depth looks at issues in culture. We're going to have John on again, and he's going to tell us about French post-structuralist philosophers. Like, what is that all about? We'll find out. And we've spoken about technological optimism. I had Natasha Vita Moore on, a transhumanist. You'll find her at natasha.cc. And we spoke about Joseph Campbell. And you can go to jcf.org for the Campbell Foundation. I had roboticist and artificial intelligence expert Louis Arana on. And I've been following Louis on Facebook. McLuhan would love all this. <laughs> And, you know, he's, oh, he's now director of AI for a Japanese robotics company. Cool. So you can, you know, follow people and see what they're up to. So lots of interesting stuff and uh, we'll keep you informed. 
bit about me. I'm a professor of architecture at Pratt Institute. You'll find my book, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And I blog at visionarycreativity.com, and you can find out more about me at johnlobel.com. Speaking of Marshall McLuhan in our technologically changing world, I was away three weeks ago. <clears throat> we had a recording, speaking of technology, because I was in San Francisco at General Electric's conference on minds and machines. And really, you know, our world is changing. Like, they call it additive manufacturing, 3D printing. They can 3D print in stainless steel or titanium parts for airplane engines <laughs> and stuff like that. Every one of their, everything GE makes, every one of their windmills, every one of their turbines, every one of their jet engines has a twin in the cloud. And, you know, the... <laughs> You know, like a windmill, the main bearing might start heating up and it's twin in a cloud. I'll contact some other windmills and say, hey, are your main bearings heating up? And they say, yeah. Well, when does that happen? Well, when the wind's over 55 miles an hour. Well, maybe we should engage the dampers on the clutch. Do you think we should tell anybody about this or can we fix it ourselves? So all these all this digital world is talking to each other, and real companies are actually doing it. I mean, I read these blogs from Kurzweil, KurzweilAI.net, and from Peter Diamantis, and, you know, they talk about this stuff. But then you go see the actual jet engines <laughs> and what they're doing with them. Anyway, you can friend me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter, and... So today, again, I mentioned Marshall McLuhan last week. I got some emails about, um, well, you know, who we've all heard of McLuhan, but what exactly was he all about? And so let's sort of um, hear his voice. So we're going to start with, in the movie Annie Hall, you might recall, there's a point where Woody Allen and Annie Hall are standing online at the uh, New Yorker movie theater talking about their totally dysfunctional sex life and in, right on the movie line. And there's somebody in back of them, a professor at uh, is teaching media and starts quoting Marshall McLuhan. And Woody Allen says, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan. He says, of course I do. I teach a course in media. And Woody Allen says, well, I just happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. And he calls him up the turn of the screw it's the influence of television yeah, now marshall McLuhan deals with it in terms of it being a, a high a, a high intensity you understand a hot medium what i would give for a large sock as a horse manure in it what do you do when you get stuck or, on a movie line with a guy like this behind you wait a minute why can't i give my opinion this is a free country he, he can give you do you have yeah. to give it so loud i mean aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that and and the funny part of it is marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about marshall McLuhan's oh, really, work really i happen to teach a class at columbia called tv media and culture so I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah, just let me, let me, let me, let me come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. 
How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. Ah, so uh, that's McLuhan's voice. We'll hear a bit more as we go along. But I just thought we'd put some, uh, put some sound. And, of course, most of you are listening online, right? So you can just right now open up your web browser and go to Wikipedia. You'll see a picture of young McLuhan. And later you can go to YouTube and hear a whole bunch of his lectures. Now, the cool thing about McLuhan is his book, Understanding Media, is about Google, Facebook, the Internet, the computer, how it's totally he uses the term global village. We're told the world is being turned into a global village. We're all interconnected. Everything we do is recorded and documented. All of it will be online forever. It can never be erased. That's why we tell teenagers, uh, be careful what you put online, right? They don't worry about it. They're there with their, you know, snapping everything they eat and uploading it. But... Uh, he wrote it all in 1964, like 30 years before Facebook. He described the whole thing. So that makes him one of the, one of the great minds of the 20th century. And unfortunately, McLuhan died young. I think he was around 69. He had a series of strokes, and he was really out of commission uh, even long before he died. And so he missed a lot of what he had written about. But in an early issue of Wired magazine, there's a famous article that channels McLuhan, what he would say about our world today. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. But the key idea we get in McLuhan, well, let's back up. McLuhan was a professor of literature, University of Toronto, and that's where he remained, even though he was, uh, <laughs> after his leap to fame, <clears throat> spent a lot of time in television studios in the United States. And so he's on TV all the time. He's lecturing all over the country. And it's interesting trying to recall, how did you find out about things in 1964? I was in architecture school at the time, and I guess I subscribed to New Yorker magazine. And in the New Yorkers, where I found out about Rachel Carson, her book was published there. The story of O, which is, uh, <laughs> we won't talk about that today, uh, but there was a book review for that in the New Yorker. And a review of this book, The Medium, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Understanding Media by Marshall McLuhan. I said, whoa, I have to go out and get that right away. I'm even surprised in those days I could get books. If I wanted a particular book, I could actually get it, even before Amazon. But anyway, and before Barnes & Noble. But anyway, uh, I was totally blown away. And it became a key document in what was then called the, um, the generation gap. And so <clears throat> my father was pretty literary. You know, He read books. And I had grown up with some TV. My parents made a point of not to have, they said, they didn't tell me, but they said, we're not getting a TV until this kid reads a book on his own. <laughs> so anyway, I started reading books, so then it was okay for them to get a TV. 
So I had sort of grown up with a little bit of TV. And then, of course, a generation younger than me, the baby boomers, uh, they grew up immersed in that TV world. So McLuhan sort of looked at that. His first book, The Mechanical Bride, was about advertising. And, you know, like in, in a movie where if uh, Cary Grant drives off in a convertible with the woman at the end of the movie, that sells more automobiles than any advertising does. You know, how this kind of pervasive environment grew up around us. His next book was The Guttenberg Galaxy by the Introduction of Print Technology. And we might think, well, do we have to understand the introduction of print technology? I mean, um, you know, books, we, you know, we know what books are. We've grown up with books. But now more than ever, we should be reading The Guttenberg Galaxy because books are going away. Uh, cover to cover, I'm trying to think when's the last time I read on paper a book. I have about two or three dozen books on my phone, and I listen to them all the time. I listen to maybe a book every week or two. But McLuhan would explain that that's totally different from reading it on the page. And to understand what that's doing, you know, uh, so in, under, in the Guttenberg Galaxy, he explains how with, now writing had been around forever, but with Guttenberg, we, nobody could read because, you know, no one could afford books. They were copied by scribes. So if you wanted to, if you were a Medici prince, uh, you'd say to go over to the monastery and say to the scribes, "Can you, can you get me a copy of Plutarch?" And they say, "Sure." And somebody would sit down with a quill pen and spend two months copying one from their library, and that would be pretty expensive, right? So you had to be a Medici to have that book. So with Guttenberg and the printing press, all of a sudden books become common and available. Now, so you're reading a book, and there's your eye moving linearly across this line of type. And the sentence is made up of words, and the words are made up of letters. And there are these mechanical parts that are put together to convey ideas. Putting parts together that fit to make larger things. And the people who did that, and the fixed center of focused vision with which you read, totally different from your peripheral vision, goes to a totally different part of the brain and exercises that part of the brain. So McLuhan points out if you exercise a muscle, it gets bigger, becomes dominant. If you exercise a part of the brain, it becomes denser in neurons. It becomes dominant. So that as we stopped listening to stories being told, coming in through the ear and going to the auditory part of the brain, and we started reading, coming in through the fixed focus center of vision in the eye and going to the visual part of the brain, it exercised different part of the brain and that brain started to become dominant. That brain was linear logical. And what do you get? The Renaissance, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, all brought about from a new kind of thinking that was coming about because our brains were wired differently because we were using a different medium 
the book. Now, we associate McLuhan with this famous phrase, the medium is the message. And the, uh, in our cut two here, we're going to see McLuhan describe what he means by that. And what he means is the important thing is the fact that we're reading books, not their content. The fact that we're now, or we were when he wrote in 1964, watching TV, not the content. So let's see what McLuhan says about the medium is the message. We better deal with um, the medium is the message before it does go into the ah. 21st century. Uh, when you say the, the medium is the message, does that leave any room at all for criticism of individual, say, television programs? Or content. Um, yes. <clears throat> you see, it doesn't much matter what you say on the telephone. The telephone as a service is a huge environment, and that is the medium. And the environment affects everybody. What you say on the telephone affects very few. And the same with radio or any other medium. What you print is nothing compared to the effect of the printed word. The printed word sets up a paradigm, a structure of awareness, which affects everybody in very, very drastic ways. And it doesn't very much matter what you print as long as you go on with that form of activity. You've said that uh, television promotes illiteracy. I'm wondering whether you think that's a bad thing. Uh, I don't think it promotes illiteracy. I think it creates another form of awareness. Uh, literacy had uh, very strange antecedents, very strange effects on people, and uh, we're only beginning to notice what those effects were now that it tends to be pushed aside. Uh, the uh, literacy uh, as a form of awareness is a, a highly specialist and objective sort of thing. You can stand back and the literate man can stand back objectively and look at situations. The TV person has no objectivity at all. But, but does television, say, promote illiteracy, or doesn't it? It tends to uh, create a totally different kind of awareness, which is rather that of involvement. Literacy is objective. TV is subjective, totally involving. So McLuhan's point was... The important issue is, and let's simplify it to books and TV, are we book people? Do we go alone into a room and read a book which was written by an individual person to reach another individual person? And if we do that, we create, first of all, the book or book culture is then an environment and we exist in a certain way in that environment and then we get a totally different environment tv so we now very interestingly it's important in understanding McLuhan and then using his methods which we'll talk about uh, as we go along here to understand where we are today <clears throat> to understand when he says TV, he means that fuzzy black and white stuff that was had terrible resolution. But you could sort of absorb what was going on. But if you went up close, there was nothing there. It was just a smudge of dots. So I was uh, <laughs> talking about popular culture yesterday. I was at the mall. 
And at the mall, I always go into Sears and look at that huge screen, that 65-inch curved screen Samsung 4K television, and go closer and closer and closer. And you just keep going closer, and it keeps getting sharper, unlike the TV when I was a kid. <laughs> and then came along color TV. And McLuhan's point was color TV is a totally different medium. It totally changes. It's not just black and white TV with color. It's something totally different. And what we have today with this high resolution where it's whether it's 1080p, which you know most of us now have, or the 4K that we'll be getting soon, it is something totally different. It told everything McLuhan says about what television does has nothing to do with our television today. One of the things McLuhan's talking about is when back in the 60s, when or 50s, when we when I watched I Love Lucy, actually I didn't. <laughs> we didn't have a TV, but everybody was talking about it the next day. You know, I went to uh, after school. I went to sculpture class, and so there we were in Dorothy Q's basement, and all these people I knew from high school. And you know, the, our parents thought we should get some art. There wasn't enough art in school, so. We would take the sculpture class. Everybody would be talking about what happened last night on I Love Lucy. The point is it created a global village. It created an instant community. There were only, what, about five channels on the TV. This is even before there was PBS. You know, there was ABC, NBC, CBS, and two local channels that had reruns. And so... Maybe 80% of the people in the country were watching I Love Lucy. It created a real community. A hugely successful show today might have, what, 3 4 5% of the audience, unless we're talking about, you know, the last episode of, what was that, um, last episode of Cheers or something like that, or whether we're talking about the Super Bowl, you know, then maybe... 20, 30, 40 percent will be watching. But regularly, a successful show would have 80 percent market share. And that created a community of everybody at the water cooler the next day or in the office or wherever or over the clothesline would be have the same stuff to talk about because they had all seen the same thing, creating this village effect, and McLuhan's term for that is the global village. Electronic media, particularly TV, brings us the global village. So let's see what uh, McLuhan has to say about TV with uh, Go. Cut three. <laughs> I didn't say it didn't matter what you asked on TV. I said that the effect of TV, the message, of TV is quite independent of the program. That is, there is a huge technology involved in TV which surrounds you physically. And the effect of that huge service environment on you personally is vast. The effect of the program is incidental. Now, uh, here's a key point about McLuhan and what, what causes generation gap. <laughs> 
you know, my father reads the I'm raving about it, so my father reads it. He says, what is that? This is lunacy. It, you know, it doesn't make sense. And McLuhan has a very difficult style. We'll talk about that in a minute. But his key point is the medium is the message. In other words, what's important is the fact of television, not the content. The content is irrelevant. And this drove literate adults crazy because they were all busy riling against, oh, TV could have been this wonderful educational medium. And it could have been running, you know, National Geographic documentaries. And instead, it's running I Love Lucy or whatever, uh, you know, Father Knows Best or the Andy Griffith Show or whatever stupid sitcoms, which, you know, we now appreciate were pretty good. <laughs> I watch them regularly on reruns. Maybe that's a sign of my age. But <clears throat> anyway, so the intellectuals of the day would rile against how bad the content was. It wasn't literate, you know. It, I Love Lucy was not James Joyce. <laughs> it was not Norman Mailer. And, you know, occasionally Norman Mailer would be on TV, actually debating Marshall McLuhan. You can find that on YouTube. But, and then McLuhan comes along and says, the content is irrelevant. And he said, what? No, it's terrible. It's rotting out the minds of children. How can you say it's irrelevant? And that would be the big debate. So half of, you know, McLuhan, when he appeared on TV, was usually interviewed by some intellectual <laughs> or pseudo-intellectual. And they would right away attack him on that issue, as you just heard. Say, how can you say the content is not important? And McLuhan's point was, yeah, the content is the content, but who cares? I don't even remember the content. The point is that it created this, in this case, this global village. It created The fact is that everybody was watching the same show whatever it was, and it created a community of discourse. You're even aware of it. I was very aware in the, uh, in the 50s that if I listened to a pop song, a rock and roll, you know, top 40, on the radio, it was totally different from if I bought the little 45 RPM disc and I listened to it on my little RCA boxy um, 45 player, same song, same sound quality, totally different experience. Because when I listened to it on the radio, there were only two or three rock and roll stations. They're now news stations. <laughs> but there were two or three rock and roll stations, and they would all have, you know, whatever, a 30% market share. And I knew that there were th uh, subconsciously, I knew that there were thousands or maybe even millions of other people listening to the same song at the same time. And that had an effect that was totally different from the private experience when I listened to it on my record player. So that today, when we listen to music on our MP3 players, which used to be iPods, I still use an iPod, when I exercise, the thing's so tiny and light uh, that, you know, it, it's convenient. But usually we listen on our phones. 
And when we do that, it's a private experience. We're listening. If I listen to, uh, just to tell you how out of it I am, I hang out in a, in a diner and they, they have a soundtrack and this song keeps coming up and I have no idea what it is and I can't, you can't recognize the lyrics. So we're in a restaurant last night and I, we're seated and this song was on. I said to the, uh, I said to the guy seating us at the Red Lobster, uh, hey, what's, what's on the, what's on the radio right now? What's on the, you know, the PA system? He says, that's Adele doing Rumor Has It. Cool. <laughs> I get home, put it on my phone, and listen to it this morning. I don't know if anybody else is listening to Rumor Has It. So it was a private experience rather than if I had listened to it 50 years ago on the radio, it would have been a public, communal, global village experience. Not only that, I had this annoying experience that I didn't put it on my phone. I won't put it on my phone. I pay for it on iTunes, and there it is on my phone. I can play it, but it's streaming it when I play it. So if I'm not online, if I'm, you know, in a basement somewhere, I can't get it. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. I want it on my iPhone, and iTunes says, you can't have it on your iPhone. You have streaming turned on. So maybe some caller can call in and tell me how to, what I need to do about that. So now the key thing with all this with McLuhan, a real challenge to the book world, the literary world, happens with the telegraph. So why don't we take a break and uh, just for a few minutes, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the introduction of instant communications and what that did to the world. Progressive Radio Network, the number one network for those who care about the truth. Hello, everyone. I'm Bhavani Jaroff, natural food chef and owner of I Eat Green, a company dedicated to connecting the dots between the foods we eat, how they are grown, how they impact our environment, and how they affect our health. We celebrate the pleasures around the table and work to build a sustainable food movement of like-minded people. I'd like to invite you to join my show, I Eat Green with Bhavani, every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where I share my recipe of the week, discuss food and environmental policies that affect us all, and interview a leader in the fields of food, health, or the environment. Together, we can work to build a sustainable food movement, one bite at a time. Remember, my show is every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope you can join us. This is Mike Fader. I want to tell you about my show, The Turning Point, broadcast every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern on PRN.FM. It's not just politics or pop culture or art or personal essays or storytelling. It's all of those. And it's in a spontaneous blend of stream of consciousness expression. It's not bad. Sex, children, work, beauty, ecstasy, death, regeneration. That's the turning point every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern on PRN.FM. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Now, you don't have to come with us. But what would the neighbors say? You can't always get what you want. Welcome back. 
This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. You can call in. Our phone number is 888-874-4888. If anybody wants to call in with their experiences of McLuhan, just to tell you how old I am, uh, anybody who read it when it came out, <laughs> it was blown away, or read it more recently, or are otherwise interested in or involved in McLuhan. Let me just uh, tell you where to turn before we go on. So I described that McLuhan wrote this book, The Gutberg Galaxy. And if you're like, you know, a cultural theoretician type, you want to read that. But if you want to just sort of be immersed in understanding our electronic age, McLuhan wrote a book called Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. And that's his major work. And in it, he talks about how, well, the extensions of man, that, well, let's get, let's get a little bit um, academic-y here and talk about the philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And what Merleau-Ponty tells us is how the body is part of our subjectivity. So what do we mean by that? So... We, the world we encounter is the world we create, right? Our self is a generative of the world. Um, we encounter the world as human beings, as whatever our gender is, whatever our culture is, etc. And what Merleau-Ponty points out is that self that we're coming from is as much our bodies as our minds. And so our world has a front, back, left, right, because that's the way our bodies are built. And a door is wide or narrow based on how wide or narrow our bodies are. And then he'll point out that we absorb our technology. So when we're driving an automobile, we're saying, you know, I think I can fit through there. And so we have absorbed the automobile and its width to our bodies, and we engage the environment, the world, through ourselves plus the automobile. Well, McLuhan points out that, let's say you add eyeglasses. You see totally different. Let's say you add binoculars. Let's say you add a radio. You can now hear around the planet. Let's say you add a TV. You can now see things you couldn't see when you are just looking at a book. So these uh, technologies, the, these media that he talks about, act as extensions of us. They become a part of our body. And so anthropologically, you know, people who live in the rainforest with a stone axe, let's say, are totally different creatures that live in a rainforest with a steel axe. And in fact, uh, McLuhan points out how, say, anthropologists will be studying some tribe. And there's a, a young man at a certain age will go through a ritual, and he'll make his first stone axe. And the anthropologist looks at all the effort that he has to go through to cut down a tree with this stone axe, and says, you know, here, here's a steel axe. You cut down a tree in one-tenth the time. 
and suddenly he's destroyed the culture, the anthropologist says, because it turns out making that stone axe was not just uh, a an immediate tool. It was part of the entire culture. Making that stone axe announced that this young boy had now grown up. He was a young man, and he was ready for marriage. And he, he, his position that gave him the position to uh, to be married was his stone axe. Now everybody, including the women, have steel axes. They say, I don't need to marry someone for a stone axe. I have a steel axe. <clears throat> and suddenly the society falls apart. So McLuhan, when he looks at, for example, the automobile, he says the automobile is not a horseless carriage. It's a front porch on wheels. So what did you do on the front porch? Well, you'd do courting. You'd hang out there with your girlfriend or boyfriend, and you'd, you know, watch uh, the neighbors walk by. Now suddenly that front porch can detach from the house and become mobile. So you can park. You can get to tr into trouble with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you can, instead of just tossing a beer can off the porch, you can toss it out your car window and creates the new phenomenon of litter. It creates the teenager. What was a teenager? Teenager's person who's old enough to have a car, but not old enough to earn a living. And that didn't exist before automobiles. Teenager's a recent thing, and it's quickly going away. We read now statistics that 20% less teenagers, upon getting a driver's license or becoming old enough to get a car, and often they don't even get a driver's license. Between public transportation, more people being in cities, and Uber, it's totally changing how young people relate to the environment, like they're just not interested in cars or a lot less interested in cars. So McLuhan allows us to see that way, what roads do. And so what... Um, Clothing does what the written word, the spoken word. <laughs> Here's a chapter. Money, the poor man's credit card, clocks, the scent of time, print, how to dig it, comics, mad vestibule to TV, the printed word, architect of nationalism. So McLuhan looks at these phenomena like, oh, if you go just before World War II, we had these figures, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Roosevelt. McLuhan points out these are all creatures of radio. Radio is a hot medium. And maybe I'll describe hot and cool in a minute, but it's high density. It generates involvement. And so these high energy activity figures are born of this new medium of radio. And then the first television politician was John F. Kennedy. And there's endless analysis of the famous Kennedy-Nixon debates. And Nixon was a hot medium figure that just did not come across on TV the way John F. Kennedy did come across on TV. And then we'll hear things like, you know, uh, Obama was the first... Uh, the first Facebook candidate or something like that, that he used Facebook. <laughs> and now we're aware that Trump used Twitter so that the personalities of the political figures that 
emerge are a function of the dominant media of their time. So Trump would have just looked ridiculous on a low-resolution black-and-white TV where Kennedy shone and vice versa. So McLuhan goes into how these different media have these cultural consequences. Anyway, to get back to what book you should read, the book is Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. And McLuhan has this very, I don't know, flowery way of writing. And I even find it difficult to read that book today, even though I've read it, you know, a few times. And I just loved it in 1964 when I read it. Somehow I've changed along with everything else. So here's the thing. There's an interesting guy named Quentin Fior. And Quentin Fior was a book producer. And he would identify the really hot, interesting people of the day, like uh, Buckminster Fuller. And he realized that Buckminster Fuller did not do a good job of explaining himself, and his books were not really readable. So he goes to Buckminster Fuller and he says, why don't you let me write your book? Why don't we take the best stuff in your best books? We'll put them together, maybe with illustrations. We'll sort of take very quotable quotes out of it. We'll use graphic design to make stuff pop. We'll have, you know, large type and small type and mix it all together. And with McLuhan, he wrote a book called I Seem to Be a Verb. And with Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, he did a book on 2000 and the making of 2001, I think. And then he did a book with a psych psychologist or psychiatrist that I worked with in school called Understanding Understanding. So he did a book called, with McLuhan, called The Medium is the Massage. Now, <clears throat> right away, uh, we got to say that's massage, M-A-S-S-A-G-E. So the book you want to get is The Medium is the Massage. You can read it in about an hour. Some pages have like four words on them. Uh, some are, you know, full pages of type, but a lot aren't. And it's mixed with photographs. So you can just sit down, flip through it, and you'll get the whole point. Excellent introduction to McLuhan. So uh, that's what we're recommending here. And let's go on. And the key point that McLuhan points out, the big thing, the biggest thing that ever happened was the telegraph because it eliminated space. Suddenly, you could send a message from New York to London instantly, whereas previously, and <laughs> there's a great TV series from McCullough's biography of John Adams, and, you know, we had relationships with France, and we had negotiations with England. So you'd send a message from New York to Paris. The boat would take six weeks to get across the Atlantic. They'd send a message back at six weeks. In the meantime, they're fighting a war. A lot of stuff can happen in 12 weeks. So all of a sudden, you get the telegraph. In the 1860s, the first transatlantic cable, and suddenly could communicate instantly. So cut four, McLuhan talks about the telegraph. Hardware. Why? Hardware is on paper and pen and ink and uh, courier sending this 
missive to a, another party somewhere else. You mean it's not a transient? It's not instant. Thing, okay, it's not, it's, it's uh, an electric is always instantaneous. There's no delay. That's why you don't have a body. Instantaneous communication is minus the body. So that began with the telegraph. The telegraph also had that uh, built-in dimension of the instantaneous and it completely transformed news and information. Mere, the mere speed. It didn't matter what was written, the fact that it went at the speed of light transformed everything. So, again, the idea that the medium is the message, not the content. And if you saw the movie Lincoln and you see the war room with, with the, all the telegraphs and the war maps, so, oh my God, that was, <laughs> I already had the internet in the 1860s. And with instant communication, all this stuff coming in from locales everywhere, coordinating it. So the telegraph creates that instant world. And if we look at a painting, and so McLuhan's really good at mixing all these genres and something I do, you know, I teach art and architectural history. But if you know Edward Munch's famous painting, The Scream, and McLuhan will point out, this is coming about in the late 1800s, the anxiety, because remember we said these things are extensions. The automobile is an extension of ourselves. The book is an extension of ourselves. And now the telegraph and then the telephone uh, you put that to your ear, and all those wires go. <laughs> the transatlantic cable is an extension of the neurons in your brain. Half your brain is outside your skull. <laughs> it's looped around the world, and today, of course, it's bouncing off of satellites, and it's 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 you know zipping around the cloud, and uh, God knows what it's doing, right? And so. We have this totally new creature, a creature that's got an extended nervous system, 90% of which is outside of its skull. So, of course, it's in scream, <laughs> Edward Munch's painting of this poor creature in total anxiety. And in realizing this, and so the trick is to understand the pattern, you know, to understand inherently underlying what's going on. And once you do that, everything clicks into place. And you can even start to predict an emerging world that, you know, an emerging world that people really don't understand yet. Let's jump ahead to cut seven. Cut seven, and we'll see what this new world is. With me now is Marshall McLuhan. Well, Marshall, you've done a considerable amount of writing about media. Uh, what does this all mean, the uh, book world that we had and the electronic world we have? I think the best distinction, Alan, might be found in the phrase, with it. You know how we speak of being with it, meaning we've understood completely, we, we've got the message, as it were, in every way possible. But in the older book or print culture, people were not with it, they were away from it by themselves with their own private point of view. 
Now, you have no point of view when you're with it because you accept the thing totally. And we're with it because these new media of ours, the one you talked about in the appliance store, have made our world into a single unit. The world is now like a continually sounding tribal drum where everybody gets the message all the time. A princess gets married in England, and boom, boom, boom go the drums. We all hear about it. An earthquake in North Africa, a Hollywood star gets drunk, away go the drums again. I use the word tribal. It is probably the key word of this whole half hour. Why, Marshal, do you use the word tribal? Why, why this? Well, I think you'll find everything we observed tonight about the media uh, points in the direction of tribal man and away from individual man. Now, by individual man, I assume that you're referring to John's literary man. Yes, uh, and, and tribal man is the man created by the new electronic media. So that this would be the basic change we spoke of at the beginning. Yes, we're retribalizing. Involuntarily, we're getting rid of individualism. We're in a so a totally new human being comes about. And now notice here something going on. Uh, McLuhan's talking about we all, the drums beat, we find it instantly. What's he talking about? He's talking about Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> and so let's jump ahead and see him produce something else. Let's go to cut five, and we'll see, you know, already something uh, interesting. Instead of going out and buying a package book, uh, of which there have been 5,000 copies printed, you will go to the telephone, Describe your interests, your needs, your problems, and say, I'm working now on the history of Egyptian arithmetic. I know a bit of Sanskrit. I, I am uh, I'm qualified in German, and uh, I am a, a good mathematician. They said, it'll be right over. And they at once Xerox, with the help of computers from the libraries of the world, all the latest material just for you personally, not as something to be put out on, a, on the bookshelf. They send you the package as a direct personal service. This is where we're heading under electronic information conditions. Products increasingly are becoming services. Becoming services. So what was McLuhan talking about there? Any, hey, raise your hand. <laughs> He's talking about search. He's talking about Google. Ah, so that you say you're interested in something, and he said Egyptian mathematics. So you go to you go to your search bar, you put Egyptian mathematics, and he mentioned Sanskrit, you throw in Sanskrit, and then maybe say advanced if you're already a mathematician, and bingo, and realize, and those of us who have lived through Google, realize how much better it's getting, recall the early days of Yahoo. So in the day first days of search, what the search engines would do is, let's say you're searching on shoes. And <clears throat> so it'll look for a website that's got the word shoes on the first page. And the people selling shoes, and you might or might not be looking to buy shoes. Maybe you want to, you know, write a term paper about shoes. But, you know, somebody selling shoes will say, wait a minute, uh, what makes my website come up as the first one? Oh, it seems that Yahoo's looking for the website with the word shoes several times. So on the bottom, you know, below the screen, I'll write shoes 100 times. And then my web page will come up first. And, of course, the next person says, well, I'll put shoes there a 1,000 times. And pretty soon we just get annoyed because that's not what I'm looking for and when I'm as a searcher. And so 
Google developed this secret sauce, uh, a set of algorithms that would know what I'm looking for. Say thousands of other people that fit my profile, when they looked for Egyptian mathematics, they eventually went to page eight and clicked on this article. We'll put that first. And so I start typing and I'm halfway through a word and there's what I'm looking for, right? And so here's McLuhan talking about that. In 1964, or maybe it's, let's just say it's 66. So that's 50 years ago. He's talking about Google. So that's the incredible thing about McLuhan. It describes this entire cool world that we're living in today. And so uh, if we go to, you know, you can find all the McLuhan you want online. Strongly recommend the talks on talks on YouTube so you can hear him lecture once. You know, if I'm going to read something like this, you always want to listen uh, if the person's voice is available. So when you read it, you can sort of hear it in their voice, right? And if you go online, you look, you know, besides, of course, starting with Wikipedia, but suppose you went to um, put in McLuhan and quotes, and so we can get McLuhan quotes. Let's see, I printed some of those out. Let's see if we can find any of them. Uh, we shape our tools, and afterwards our tools shape us. So, class, anyone know where that comes from? Uh, Winston Churchill said we build our we, we form our buildings, and then our buildings form us. He was arguing for the design of the Houses of Parliament. Our age of anxiety is, in general part, the result of trying to do today's job with yesterday's tools and yesterday's concepts. So he has all these insights, like the content of art is the previous environment. So when the Industrial Age happened, Everybody started making paintings of landscapes at the time that the landscape uh, disappears. American youth attributes much more importance to arriving at driver's license age than to voting age. Yes, that's exactly what's changing today. Uh, so what, you know, between Uber and Facebook, uh, suddenly driving is less important. We never thought that would happen. Right. So who would have thought that the the desire of the young man <laughs> to get his first automobile would actually be fading away? Oh, poor automobile companies. The spoken word was the first technology by which man was able to let go of his environment in order to grasp it in a new way. I mean, these great ways of thinking. McLuhan says... Light is information without content. And at the time, the major manufacturer of light bulbs was General Electric. And McLuhan would say, General Electric does not realize that it's an information company. Now it does. Remember, we were talking about that in the beginning of the show. GE is now rebranding itself as a digital industrial revolution. It's realizing it's about, about information. If they had read McLuhan 50 years ago, they could have gotten a 50-year jump on that. Um, 
A point of view can be a dangerous luxury when substituted for insights and understanding. So a point of view comes from having a position in which to stand. You have to be an individual to ha- and to have a location in space, to have a point of view. That's gone and replaced by something totally different. And so, again, the trick was once McLuhan got it, he got the understanding of how the underlying pattern works. That gave him the insights through which to present the whole thing, to understand what no one understood before. He was called in by companies. Um, you know, these big grocery store chains have something that where there are the aisles and above them are these one-way mirrors and the executives stand up there and people, uh, test shoppers go down the aisle and they see, are they drawn to the upper shelves or the lower shelves? What if they put on a cereal box, you know, a red, uh, a lot of red on the cereal box and a lot of blue on the cereal box, which will attract the shopper? And so they say, oh, this is McLuhan stuff. So they invite McLuhan to their, to their test facility and he's standing up there watching. He says, very impressive. And he has his famous phrase, but of course. But of course, in the future, people will want to have a tactile interrelationship with the food. And suddenly you go to Whole Foods and there are bins of food and mountains of vegetables and mountains of nuts and peas and beans and stuff. And, you know, the idea of wanting the food in the boxes was uh, from illiterate time. And we had entered into this visual uh, television time. And today we're in yet another time. And so people who understand that, who live in this emerging media, are the ones who, as McLuhan says, get it. So again, this is John LaBelle. We're on our show Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. We've been talking about Marshall McLuhan. Go to uh, visionaries.podbean.com to catch this show and our other back shows and we'll see you again talking about MOOCs next Monday. Thank you.